Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Noah Smith, writer, economist, writer at Bloomberg, thinker, excellent tweeter and tweet stormer. Noah, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome. Noah, we have a very wide ranging discussion uh, here today, but why don't you give a brief background on what you are up to and how you got to where you are today? What I'm up to is mostly sitting around uh, watching my rabbits to make sure they don't fight. But, you know, in my spare time, I, I write for Bloomberg Opinion. I write about economics, finance, stuff like that. So I was working as a professor at Stony Brook University in New York, and I didn't really want to do academia. And so I was, you know, going to leave. Bloomberg came to me with a great offer and said, we'll make you a pundit. Because I had this blog that people... Uh, liked at the at the time. I don't update it that frequently anymore, but although I probably should, which was called No Opinion, and um, and I had been blogging since I was a grad student, uh, mostly sort of cranky complaints about macroeconomics and stuff. Not the kind of stuff you expect to be general interest, but somehow it caught on and people liked it. And so Bloomberg hired me to be an opinion writer. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. That's that's pretty much how I got where I am. And one of the you know things I, I've gathered from reading you for quite some time is. Really at sort of the intersection of different different worlds, sort of you know obviously the the academic economics world, but also sort of the rationalist community world, also just Silicon Valley tech world, business world, politics. What do you take to be your sort of superpower or perhaps your sort of accumulated advantage that you gained as as you've you've continued to work? I do not know why people like stuff that I write. I have never really known uh, when I was first blogging. I would look at the the analytics. I, I used Blogger, which is the most ancient site, and I did it as sort of this ironic normcore, uh, you know, thing. And um, but, but you know, it had basic analytics, and I would look at it and I would say, okay, well, people kind of like this thing. I'll write more stuff like that, I guess. Not as an intentional strategy to build my brand, just sort of out of an innate, automatic desire to please people, I guess. And um, and that seemed to work well. But I don't know why people like what I write. Uh, some people do. And I guess, you know, preferences are just preferences. And one thing I, I often find you doing is sort of like, let's say, talking about Silicon Valley for a second, like moderating the conversation on both sides. One, trying to sort of not let Silicon Valley sort of eat its own hype, so to, so to speak, but then all at the same time sort of ward off against irrational critiques of it. And, and do you feel yourself as sort of being a moderate, moderating influence between worlds? I guess. I mean, you know, I've always been a real techno optimist. And I've always thought that a lot of the criticisms of the tech industry are absolutely just manufactured. Uh, you know, people were, went looking for a reason to criticize the the tech industry and the, the culture around the tech industry for one reason or another, and it's silly. But, you know, I mean, part of that is just the overall critical nature of, uh, of American culture, American society, where this very negative people and all too often, instead of creating things, we see our value as tearing down other people's things or criticizing. And of course I fall into that trap plenty myself. I'm an American. It's interesting, you know, when I see things happening in other countries and people being fans of those things, and I think, wow, if this were in America, there would already be a backlash and a backlash to the backlash, et cetera. <laughs> you know, a million think pieces in Slate and Vice and every publication 
uh, you know, saying why this is terrible, you know, and why it's actually not so terrible. People tweeting, dunking on each other, blah, blah, blah. And I know this happens in every country and every culture, but I just have always felt that America is particularly bad about it. Uh, why is that? I don't know. You know, to be honest, I don't know. I feel like it's a it's laziness. It's easier to criticize than to create. So part of it is laziness. You know, I don't really know why we have this peculiar sort of aggression in our cultural interactions, this, this urge for denunciation. It may be something that we picked up from other cultures because, you know, I sort of get the, the, the impression that France kind of has this too and that uh, Britain has something a little bit like it. So it may be that we just picked it up from sort of these predecessor uh, cultures that we got influenced a lot by of Britain and France. But to be honest, I don't know. That's me just making up stuff, and I don't really know. Right. So uh, in this podcast, we're going to cut touch a wide variety of topics, and we're going to talk about where we think that people, yours or mainstream, has misconceptions around those topics, or or even experts have misconceptions around those topics, and where we sort of ha- have differing opinions. And maybe we could start with with Silicon Valley because we we touched on it. You know, Tyler Cowen will go as far as to say that you know people are vastly sort of overrating the negative effects of a Facebook or Google, or they're sort of getting unfair treatment. Where, where do you uh, stand on sort of how the big, you know, fang companies are, are perceived slash anything else worthy, worthy to mention about Silicon Valley or, or, or technology? To be honest, I don't really know. I think that a lot of the criticism is probably coming from people whose own business models were destroyed by those companies. So for example, you have a lot of publications that sort of, um, you know, tried to advertise on Facebook with Facebook newsfeed and were very optimistic about the traffic they were getting and then didn't get dollars to match that because Facebook was taking all the ad dollars. So they resented Facebook because of that. And then Facebook, you know, sort of nuked a newsfeed in response to the fake news controversy. And then they lost their traffic, any you know, more. And so I think that there's some of that going on. And so you know, also big tech companies were one of the only institutions or kinds of companies that was really succeeding in the aftermath of the, of the financial crisis and the Great Recession because finance kind of got nuked, real estate kind of got nuked, and a lot of the traditional paths to wealth in America got nuked. And of course, journalism at the time, you know, the media business was being eaten up by tech in general. All the ad revenue, you know, ad revenue from classified ads disappeared and that killed newspapers. And, um, so a lot of these these traditional industries were being slaughtered right at once. You know, of course, austerity slaughtered the federal service. You know, there, there's less, a lot less federal employees than there used to be. Um, so you couldn't go into government. Uh, teacher salaries didn't really go up. And, and um, you know, we had a peak in, in people going to college. And so academic hiring really flattened off. And basically, so no one was getting jobs. No one was doing well, except these tech, these big companies were doing great. They're making money hand over fist. People were making money off startups. But man, Google and Facebook and these people were just making untold amounts of money suddenly you know mark zuckerberg uh, jeff bezos are you know the richest people in america and i think there's a natural resentment of that there's a natural tendency to look at that and say well they're making all this money nobody else is why are they taking all the money and to look for ways in which that's happening and ways in which they're bad and shouldn't be taking all the money you know that that's obviously one one aspect of it but then you also see that these companies have become extremely big and extremely powerful and companies that become extremely big and extremely powerful find it Essentially impossible to not be evil in some way, and so you see Google dropped "Don't be evil" from its from its you know official motto, I believe. And then you hear stories about Google sort of um, working the antitrust refs and sending these you know uh, George Mason libertarian kind of people to go uh, you know sort of 
suppress criticism of it among among the antitrust kind of crowd. And so Jonathan Tepper has has talked about that. So yeah, so you 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 hear about these companies that used to be very idealistic, becoming big and corporate. And I think our intuition from the 1980s and earlier that big, you know, powerful corporations are inherently sort of nefarious was true and remains true because the incentives are there for you to be nefarious. Once you are the king, once you have that dominant pseudo-monopoly power and you're this industry incumbent, you have every incentive to defend it with every tool at your at your disposal and relatively little incentive to be good. And I think that we're seeing this extreme dominance with a lot of these tech platforms. And naturally, they're, they're going to do things to, to meet their bottom line. So I am worried about that at the same time as I think that a lot of the excess criticism of, of tech is silly. I think that there's a lot of good, real criticisms out there to be made. Some people look at the sort of how journalism has evolved and say, hey, actually, that's, you know, markets that work, you know, newspapers used to have an unfair monopoly, and, and now they don't. And this is how things should be. Are you sympathetic to that? You know, I don't really know. I know that a lot of people have very strong opinions about this, but I don't. I'm worried about the decline of local newspapers. You know, the existence of classified ads and the need to bundle classified ads with local newspapers really ended up cross-subsidizing, you know, sort of local journalism. And we're not getting that now. And there's there's evidence that, you know, government uh, waste and overspending increases when you don't have local journalism to sort of be a check on it. That's just one small research finding. There's probably other things. So I am worried about that. I'm worried about the decline in local journalism. Other stuff. So I, I think that there's actually way too much of what I do in the world. There's way too many opinion journalists tossing out takes and think pieces. I, I'm in an incredibly crowded field and there's just too much of it to keep up. That's going to have to decline. There's going to have to be a shakeout there because, um, yeah, there's just there's too many people doing what I'm doing here in every conceivable way, not just on economics, but especially on politics. Yeah, it's time to separate the wheat from the chaff. I mean, maybe, hopefully the wheat, will get, we'll keep the wheat and get rid of the chaff. It might be that the worst survive, that the worst clickbait and the most aggressive, you know, sort of shouty people actually end up being the ones that survive and the reasonable people sort of die off. Uh, that's also a possibility. Why haven't you gone the path of Ben Thompson in terms of doing uh, your own thing? Question for that I have for pundits or journalists is why work for a place like, although Bloomberg is a great place to work, when you can create your own, you know, WordPress and or Patreon, you know, with Patreon, et cetera, you know, build your own subscriber base where you own the data, the audience, et cetera. I could, but I don't, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy working for Bloomberg. Bloomberg, uh, you know, great people, great institution incredibly well-run organization. I'm actually kind of astonished at how how well it works. Obviously, there's, you know, there's a little bit of big corporate efficiency, inefficiency, but like it really is well-run and, and good people. I like what they're doing. I like what they let me do. There's no reason for me to to do that kind of thing right now. I can't say that I'll never do something like that, but I'm perfectly satisfied. Some people say, you were talking about local news, some people say like, that you know, news should be a public good or some element of that should be a public good. A few questions. One, what do you think about that? Like what, what should and shouldn't be public goods or public services? What, is it, what does it mean to be considered a public service? What, what are your thoughts on, on these broad topics? Well, you know, public good is basically anything where, you know, the market isn't going to provide enough of it on its own. The, the classic public good is something that's non-rival so that you know it's it's costless to make more of it and is non-excludable so that you actually can't stop people from using it 
you have things that are actually excludable but non-rival that you know people sort of don't make enough of. So you have not that's not a classic public good. You have the the tragedy of the commons. You have a, a lot of things that we we think of as being these public goods that are not the the exact traditional definition. Most goods that you find have some kind of combination of public good and private good. So if you look at roads, for example, obviously you can put a toll on a road and you can stop people from using it unless they pay the toll and basically charge people to use it. But if you've ever driven on turnpikes, you know that you don't see little towns flourishing on the side of the turnpike because of the, you know, people, it's very hard to get on and off the turnpike. And so with a, with a freeway, you see little towns flourishing on the side of the freeway that people, you know, little exit towns, people exit and get back on because it's free with turnpikes. You don't see that. So some of the economic activity that's created by the free service doesn't get monetized by the free service and doesn't get created if you have a toll service. That's a weird example. You know, roads are a weird thing. They create these networks of economic activity. They spur commerce even off their roads, uh, which is weird and we don't quite understand how it works. So roads are this quasi-public, quasi-private good. And of course, you have a lot of ideologues shouting about it. You have a lot of you know, libertarian people saying roads are not a public good, blah, blah, blah. We should just all have toll roads and blah, blah, blah. And then you see when you actually do have a whole ton of toll roads, it's not very good. Imagine a city where every road had a toll road. Imagine a cyber dystopia where you have a little chip in your uh, in your car and then you have to pay a differential toll that changes minute by minute, you know, by computers doing auctions against each other uh, to drive on each road and make each turn. That's, a, you know, a silly world. Um, maybe someday we'll head there. But I think there's a very good argument that roads have a public good aspect and that there's a good reason why there's no country where the roads are entirely private that also has a good road system. All the countries with the good road systems have the government extremely heavily involved in the road system. And to me, that says something. It, it, it's not a coincidence. You know, I doubt that the government is parasitical here. I think that the government really does provide something that companies won't provide by themselves with respect to roads. And therefore, we should regard roads as partially a public good, but not entirely. So there you go. Hey, right. And then the question is how to best provision that, that, that good um, in terms of aligning incentives and whenever there's a market failure, there's always a question of, you know, is this because we need, you know, government or some nonprofit or some other entity to step in, or do we just need to design better markets? And there's a whole, whole sort of, you know, faction of sort of the crypto scene that hopes for sort of a utopia where we can better align, you know, incentives across more constituents and not just employees and, you know, founders, but also users and other speculators and stakeholders to help solve some of these, you know, tragedy of the of the commons problems. And then there's a faction of, you know, Glenn Wow's liberal radicalism, radical markets are trying to experiment there too. What have you seen or what are your thoughts? Well, I haven't read uh, the book Radical Markets, but in the world of economics, you immediately get familiar with a large, this whole culture of people who push, um, you know, market-based solutions to things. And they're never, when people say market-based solutions, you know, if you're a diehard libertarian, what you really just mean is destroy the government, <laughs> get the government out of things. Free market is the only market. You know, a lot of the the more sort of reasonable, pragmatic people mean that you set up some kind of special market. So like, uh, you know, pollution permits, cap and trade kind of thing. And those kind of solutions have been extremely effective in some cases. Uh, the classic example is acid rain. And you had a cap and trade system that really managed to cut down on acid rain a lot uh, without much economic pain at all. And so you do see systems like that sort of work from time to time. 
so yeah, I think there is promise there, but I think that if you have an ideological commitment to like, that's the only kind of solution we want, you're going to miss a lot of interesting and important things. And, and, uh, if you also say, let's never do that because, you know, economists and libertarians are, are evil and, you know, you, you take that sort of approach, you're going to miss out on some, uh, some useful policy things that, that do stuff well. And so I think to be ideological about the type of policy solution you want, we only want policies that are this much markets and, you know, whatever makes no sense to me. Just do what works. Right. But I think the most generous view of their interpretation is even if government approaches are working, these sort of fundamental incentives of establishing any, you know, government uh, department or, or group is that the, the, their incentives will be to continue to grow and take, and that it's a fundamental incentive problem, no matter how good they are. Is That is absolutely possible. You know, Mansur Olson sort of had this idea, right? Like basically institutions outlive their usefulness. They sort of have this institutional momentum. The problem is if you say, okay, so the solution to this is we're going to create these, you know, we're going to replace all this stuff with like, you know, market-based mechanisms and blah, 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 blah. Well, how are you going to do that? So some people, including a friend of mine, Balaji Srinivasan, whom you might know, have said, you, you don't need to get a social movement. You don't need to change the system using the system. You just go around the system. He says, you know, don't complain about things, build. That's the solution. If you want, if you don't like the way that the Federal Reserve works, build an alternative currency, build Bitcoin. Basically, you can just use technology to build your way around every social structure that people throw up. And I think that that perspective is pretty clearly wrong. I would generally call that the techno-libertarian perspective. And I think that when it works, it mostly works by accident. And I could name some historical cases where I think that really worked by accident. But I think that it's very difficult. Can you name an example or two? The gun. So if you go back to the 1200s, the people who really kicked everyone else's ass on the whole planet were these horse archers who were, I love this example, by the way, I tell it a lot. The horse archers trained their whole life. They could shoot really well, much farther, not much farther, but, but somewhat farther than early guns and much more accurately and more quickly. And so they were, they were the badasses of the world and they were so much more mobile. Their horses could live off the land and they rode around basically taking whatever they want, smashing everyone else genociding, raping, pillaging, conquering, and then fighting themselves and, and sort of leaving. So Genghis Khan was, of course, the, the uh, apotheosis of this approach, but he certainly wasn't the only one. Now, that situation persisted for roughly a thousand-ish years. And then uh, Genghis Khan's own troops kind of, well, they didn't really invent the gun, but they, they invented somewhat better guns and they spread gunpowder to people who did invent the gun. And then you could have a peasant go and train very quickly and have 80% of the range and 80% of the accuracy and 80% of the rate of fire of a horse archer warrior who has trained his entire life. And you just get a whole bunch of these peasants who are essentially throwaway nothings, you know, half starving, uh, you know, infantry with no real experience and fighting. And you could get a few of these guys and you could shoot down a bunch of horse archers with guns. And that changed the world and that paved the way for the early modern period which of course paved the way for the modern period. And so you had this extremely disruptive tech that built its way around systems of power existed, but it was by accident. In fact, it was the, it was the horse nomads themselves that did the most to encourage the development of the thing that eventually brought them down. So it's kind of funny. And so, you know, you got around this. And of course the internet has gotten around a lot of information control systems and media oligopolies and whatever. Everyone knows that story. And, and yeah, some people were, were trying to... Um, 
were trying to do that and, and dreamed of doing that with the internet. But most of the things that were developed were not by people doing that. They were by people looking to make a buck. And if you really do believe in free markets, if you really do believe that you know you have this big sea of entrepreneurs out there always looking for any opportunity to make money, and you believe that this market is relatively close to efficient, then you must believe that it's actually fairly hard, not impossible, but fairly hard to intentionally build things that work, you know, for political purposes that nobody otherwise would have built. You have to be skeptical of your ability to say, I don't like the Federal Reserve, I'm going to build something to destroy it, when, you know, nobody before had made any money doing stuff that incidentally, accidentally destroyed the Federal Reserve. Yes, maybe you can do it, but the deck is stacked against you. The deck of efficient markets is stacked against you. You're, you're, you're playing against long odds. Maybe you can do it, but it's going to be hard. And so I think that also, you know, that's one reason why this, this sort of techno-libertarian philosophy tends to fail. And the other reason I, I think is sort of the law of unintended consequences, which is that, um, you know, you trying to build around one thing creates other problems. Uh, you know, of course, we we always see that with like military technologies. We created the assault rifle to fight World War II, and then it ended up powering guerrilla <laughs> guerrillas all across the world, allowing them to defeat advanced armies later on. Uh, although, to be fair, it was the Soviets who created the AK-47. So, as you can see, I like the example of guns. I am from Texas. On some level, I do think about guns. It is interesting because in the future, we might be able to 3D print guns. Yeah, that's going to be very disruptive. Efforts at gun control are going to be pretty difficult in the age of 3D printing. And of course, what's going to happen is one of two things. The smart thing would be to have extreme bullet control because the limiting thing is actually the chemistry of the bullets. But what's really going to happen, to be honest, is they're just going to have 3D printer control. And that's going to be a thing. And everyone's going to get really mad about it. And it's not, <laughs> it's very far from the best solution. That's a, you know, it's an overtly heavy handed solution. But 3D printers are going to be heavily regulated and, you know, sort of like banned for personal use, monitored. I mean, they banned cough syrup when they found people could use it to make drugs in their bathtub. They banned cough syrup. Do you think they'll be afraid to ban 3D printers? Well, the question is, will they have the ability to? And it's sort of, it, again, I don't know how much of a believer you are in sort of a crypto utopia or even decentralized utopia. But if, if you believe money will be decentralized at some point and, you know, everything will be censorship resistant, basically, it seems that that people believe that crypto is going either two ways, either much less government ability to control and to censor or extreme censorship and control. Maybe you're seeing that with, with China using crypto technology. I guess, how do you think about in the future, the, the government's ability to control less or more than they do now? So the real answer is that I'm a little bit talking out of my butt because I don't know enough about crypto technology. For example, I know a lot of the problems that have arisen with Bitcoin, but I don't understand the you know alternative technologies like proof of stake concepts well enough to say whether I think that they will work or not. I do think that uh, two things. Number one, I think that actually the system we have to provide money with, you know, the Fed and banks and whatever is insanely cheap. Insanely cheap. Once you have paid the fixed cost of creating trusted institutions, then you have essentially as close as possible to zero marginal cost for processing payments. As for creating money, uh, you're, have you ever studied finance? You know about the risk-reward trade-off? Yep. Uh, but can you unpack it a bit? For listeners, risk in an efficient market or even in a, in a somewhat efficient market 
there's a trade-off between risk and reward, which is that things that tend to appreciate in value over time also tend to fluctuate a lot in value in the short term. So you can basically think of the world as divided into safe assets that don't go up very much, but that are very safe, and risky assets that tend to go up a lot, but often crash. So you could think of like, you know, bonds versus stocks kind of deal. And when you think about the US dollar or other major currencies, they have a negative expected rate of return because inflation, we have a we have this inflation target, 2%. But also it's very, very steady. You know, inflation is not does not show large swings in advanced countries. It tends not to. Even the 70s and 80s wasn't like that huge. So we don't have hyperinflation typically. We could, but we don't typically. What you have is a fiat money is this extremely low risk, low reward kind of thing. And now people come along and they say, okay, well, you know, we have this vague notion that that scarcity creates value and that money is something with value. That therefore, if we make something scarce, it will have more value and it will therefore be better as a form of money. And that's wrong. That's just that's just bad economics, right? It's bad folk economics and it's you know, it's the kind of thing that sort of self-taught whatever quote unquote Austrian thinkers will sometimes trick themselves into. But it's wrong economics because if you make something deflationary, that means it has a positive expected rate of return, right? And in a halfway efficient market, something with a positive expected rate of return will also have high volatility and it'll be volatile because in a halfway efficient market, you can't have two safe assets with different rates of return. Gresham's law says bad money drives out good money. If you have if you have two safe assets with, with one of which has a positive rate of return because it's a deflationary thing because you've made it artificially scarce, and the other thing has a negative rate of return because you have a two percent inflation target that you you know more or less hit, then the deflationary currency will be taken out of value. Everyone will hoard it. Everyone will put it under their pillow. People will not spend it. Why would you? trade something that's going to go up in price for a pizza when you can trade something that's going to go down in price for the same pizza. What, so the, there was a guy who paid Bitcoins for a pizza very, very early on. The, you know, those Bitcoins that he paid for the pizza would now be worth, I, I think, tens of millions of dollars. Even after the, the big crash, I think they'd still be worth like $10 million or something. Millions and millions of dollars. He paid for a pizza. That better be one good pizza. Right. If you had any idea that Bitcoin was going to go up that much, you wouldn't spend it on things. You'd hoard it. Therefore, that's what people mean when they say Bitcoin is a speculative asset rather than a currency. And if it's not a currency, it doesn't threaten the Fed in any way. Right. But isn't the argument, pro-Bitcoin argument, that money evolves in a few different steps? And first, it evolves as a collectible. Uh, then it evolves as a store value. Uh, and right now, it's perhaps in between collectible and store value. And then once it becomes stable, then over time, it can become like over time being like hundreds of years, you know, a medium of uh, of exchange or currency. Well, maybe, but the point is that you've made Bitcoin artificially scarce. It's designed to be deflationary. It is not designed to be inflationary. That means you've built in a positive rate of return. So I'm not talking about the speculative rate of return from a bunch of people speculating on it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the natural positive rate of return built into Bitcoin by its cap by the limitation on the number of bitcoins if you have more and more people wanting to use bitcoin because world population keeps growing and the economy keeps growing transactions keep growing blah blah, blah. if you have increasing demand and you have fixed supply you have a deflationary currency 
you have a positive rate of return built in to the thing. I'm not talking about speculation. I'm talking about the thing that's built into the technology. And that means people are going to want to hoard that. Yep. Uh, in, the same, in the same way that people hoard gold? In the same way that people hoard gold. You'll notice a lot of people will write on you know, Zero Hedge or, or whatever blogs. They'll say, gold is money. And they'll just say that in all caps. And they'll just keep saying it, keep saying it, keep saying it. And yet it's not. No one buys bread with gold. No one buys a pizza with gold. It does not happen. It is, you know, sir, not appearing in this film. It is not a thing. Gold is not money, and it hasn't been money for a very long time, and it has only emerged as money when you have political anarchy and state fragmentation that makes, you know, and, and low technology that makes it very difficult to transport any sort of money across state lines or enforce the usability of money across state lines. And, you know, you can transport and use gold, but gold is is not used as money in the modern day, and there's a very deep fundamental reason for no one wants to give it away. Right. I'm curious for both sort of the steel man uh, in favor of Austrians and then sort of where they see the world differently than you do or where they're perhaps incorrect. You know, they'll, they'll say things like in the 18, late 1800s, when we were on the gold standard, there was sort of a golden era in, in innovation because people sort of knew what they were, you know, they were, were incentivized to save and, and invest instead of sort of consume and have less confidence in the future. And, and that once we moved off the gold standard, it made it a lot easier for governments to pay for wars by sort of, you know, inflating the, the money supply instead of, you know, demanding that users, uh, users, uh, citizens pay, pay taxes and sort of face the cost of, of what it actually means to go to war. Is, is that is that an accurate representation of the, of the Austrian view? And if yes, where, where is it incorrect in your view? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think that the idea of a golden age of innovation when we were on the gold standard, that's correlation, not causation, because one of the things we innovated was a Fed. And recessions have been, you know, a lot less common. Deflations have been a lot less common. You know, the gold gold standard pretty spectacularly collapsed between World War One and World War Two. You know, a large war put all the gold into America's vaults. And so you had this sort of this de facto dollar standard caused by that, but the nature of the metal gold means that that's always likely to happen because you can't create more gold if you know as needed to bolster the reserves of countries. So you had you had this desperate and sort of farcical attempt by these countries to all sort of like manage the international gold reserves after the imbalance created by World War One. They failed, and you had a Great Depression. Why was there a golden age of innovation? You know, you could say, oh, well, it's because we had these powdered wigs. Oh, it's because we had um, coal power. Obviously, if we went back to using coal for everything, we'd have a great age of innovation. Top hats, monocles, you know, hats for men. That's the reason innovation has slowed down. If it has slowed down, indeed, it's because of hats for men, uh, you know, go, have gone away. Like we need to bring back hats for men. Right. So uh, speaking of hats for men, uh, seamless transition into neoliberalism, which is a term that people like to uh, throw around a lot. Earlier, we were talking about markets versus government or markets and everything. How do you sort of unpack the the term neoliberalism, how, how that's evolved? How do you respond to it? Um, I mean, you know, neoliberalism used to be this term that libertarians tried to use for themselves, and then it never really caught on. But then socialists kind of, especially in Britain, got wind of, of this word neoliberalism and started using it to mean everything bad. And that didn't catch on in America for a while because we used liberalism to mean center leftism. However, now it has. And so basically the 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 new socialist movement, the DSA and the you know people with, with rose icons on Twitter and the and the Bernie Sanders fans and whatnot, 
you have copied the British tick of using the word neoliberal to mean essentially anything they don't like. And you started to see essentially farcical applications of the term. You, people called Ta-Nehisi Coates a neoliberal. Uh, some British newspaper wrote some editorial criticizing Beyonce's Super Bowl halftime show saying she's the queen of neoliberalism. You know, people started calling Kamala Harris a neoliberal, Cory Booker a neoliberal, blah, blah, blah. Anyone they didn't like, you see people now calling Beto O'Rourke, who had a surprisingly strong showing in Texas. You know, there's this socialist are now attacking him as being a neoliberal. And so some internet guys decided you know, on Reddit, that they were going to, they were going to sort of own this term and they were going to take neoliberal and basically (laughs) use it to mean, in their words, social justice warriors who don't hate capitalism. And that was the idea of neoliberalism as they, they sort of reappropriated this term and they held this ridiculous and I should say, I should mention rigged online poll to determine the chief neoliberal shill. And Matt Iglesias would have easily won it, except someone unleashed bots that defeated him. And then I was eventually elected thanks to bots as the chief neoliberal shill. The whole thing was just goofy. And since then, I have, you know, fulfilling my semi-ironic role as chief neoliberal shill that these people foisted on me, I have tried to fulfill it by essentially taking center-lefty ideas which we used to call liberal in America and just calling them neoliberal. <laughs> and I've tried to do, and that's been what I've, what I've tried to do. And of course they're going to have another election uh, this year and I'll be, I'll be unceremoniously booted, especially for saying FDR was a neoliberal. Um, and so, that, you know, that's, I'm going to get booted and they'll have someone else and that other person will define neoliberal however they want, because why let, angry internet socialists define the word neoliberal however they want. Why not simply define neoliberal however we want? Is the term social justice warrior sort of the flip side of the coin of neoliberal? Like, are those terms like related in some sort of way? Social justice warrior is a little more of a concrete thing. I think, uh, you know, people have a reasonably good idea if, 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 you know, there's there's a lot of different kinds and degrees of social justice warrior, but I think people sort of understand what that means. Uh, better than people have understood what neoliberal means. Or socialist. Socialist is all over the place. It can mean anything. It can mean anything from like, I would like the government to provide health care or health insurance to we should outlaw private property. And so, you know, socialism is is one of these terms that's really up for grabs, kind of like neoliberal. And people have been fighting over the meaning of socialism for, you know, well over a century and fighting and killing each other and denouncing each other over the meaning of that. So we might as well have this for neoliberalism too. In comparison, social justice warrior is a little more of a um, a little more of a concrete uh, meaning, right? But it is interesting. I feel like it is a term that some people, I don't know, it could be wrong, but have, have embraced, or, or like it's both used as a something that people embrace, but also something that people largely use to criticize. I mean, because you know, a lot of people don't like it. So you know, we basically we have this idea that. American society as a whole has has privileged white men and said that white men are in charge and are considered to be like the real Americans and the real people and everybody else is sort of excluded and marginalized to some degree or in some different ways, you know, by a society that basically says like white men are the dudes, the guys, the people. And we've got to push back on that in some way. Of course, that that you know, so social justice warrior is someone who basically just thinks like that America 
that American society has overprivileged white men and wants to push back on that culturally. Under that rubric, there's a huge diversity of people who want to push back in different ways and against different pieces of that. Is woke sort of the positive spin on that term? Well, woke is, I, I feel that woke is mostly used as an epithet these days, except for a few people. So, um, you know, David Roberts of Vox used woke to describe his own journey toward becoming, uh, you know, more in line with the social justice perspective. And he, he said, part of the process of getting woke, and it was very painful to read that. And I feel like woke implies that you've realized things that other people haven't realized or that, or that you know, you were asleep and you woke up. It's like, you know, in the, like you're in the matrix. And of course the the right wingers use the term red pill to describe the exact same concept. It's like, I am now privy to, to mysterious, to revealed knowledge that before I was blind to blah, 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 blah. I think it's woke is now often used as an insult by people insulting social justice uh, types. And, and with some justification, because you see a lot of white people who say, I didn't realize how much racism there was in the United States. Yes, you did. You just didn't think you had to care. And now you think because of politics, because of Trump, because of political coalitions and social pressure and blah, blah, blah. Now it's important to care. But you knew. You knew it was there. And the idea that only recently did you wake up is a little disingenuous and a little silly. I have known that there was tons of racism in American society since I was a kid. And I never bragged about knowing that like, oh, wow, I'm hip. I'm woke. I know that there's this racism. It was just a thing that everybody knew and that I knew. And, um, and so it can be a little annoying to see people who are expecting credit for showing up late. We touched a bit on economic growth and, and let's, let's dive, dive into it. So the sort of Tyler Cowen, Peter Thiel view, not to conflate them exactly is Tyler will say that we should, you know, have a stubborn attachment to economic growth, basically above all else. And, you know, going back to what we're talking about with Facebook and Google, it's hard to see perhaps that when they get richer, when you were talking about people being perhaps jealous, when when the rich get richer, then everybody gets, uh, or there's, it's positive sum game. So one, do you agree with that? I mean, there's been large criticisms sort of trickle down that as as a term or as concept. But one, do, do you agree with that largely? And two, is, why is it so hard to sort of, is that just a hard thing to, to brand? Like, I, I feel like capitalism has had like a branding problem for quite some time. I don't know. These are a lot of questions. What, what, what do you think? I don't know. Let, that's, a, that's way too wide a, a net right there. Let's, uh, let's, let's drill down in the idea of trickle down and long-term growth. There is an idea that essentially funneling, watering the green spots funneling society's resources toward the people who have been able to, you know, capture a lot of resources in the past, giving money to rich people, that 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 increases the trend rate of growth of society. And that if you increase the trend rate of growth of society, as long as sustainable, over a long enough period, eventually that swamps everything else. Now, I think that it's true that if you could do something to create to raise the trend growth of society for centuries, that takes precedent. You've got to do that. And I agree with Tyler's book about that. That's essentially the main thesis of Tyler's book, uh, which stubborn attachments is that if you can, if there is something that you can do to raise trend growth consistently for centuries, you do it right. But the question is of trickle down economics does funneling money to rich people do that? Does that accomplish that? And I say that 
we have no good evidence that it does do that. There are a number of reasons why watering the green spots in the form of giving money to rich people should be expected to produce the opposite effect, that it's actually people who don't have money yet who are going to produce the biggest improvements. Uh, you know, there are good reasons to say, oh, well, you know, like all of the people who got who made a bunch of money by producing new stuff happen to be self-made people. Of course, there's, you know, base rate effect there. It could be just most people are don't start out rich and truthful. Anyway, the point is that I don't I don't know any good compelling reason to think that what we casually refer to as trickle down economics does raise the trend growth rate of society over the centuries long term. And therefore, saying that we should care about growth and saying that therefore we should funnel as much resources as we can to rich people, one does not imply the other. And I think actually there is a thing we can do to raise the trend rate of growth, which is support technological progress and scientific discovery as much as we can. I think that it's technology, not trickle-down, that really does this. And as often as not, those technological developments have come from government funding research, often with money that is confiscated from the richest people. And you see this, uh, Mariana Mazzucato has made this argument pretty forcefully. And I think, you know, some other people have too. Robert Gordon, who who is sort of the, the high priest of the stagnation thesis these days, he has made this argument, which is that, that government support has driven technological innovation in a remarkable number of fields with remarkably high returns. The internet, railroads, nuclear power, space travel, a million, you know, advanced materials, Everything DARPA has done, so much information technology stuff, computing, again and again, you see governments driving these improvements. Government-funded research, government-funded labs, government-coordinated projects with DARPA, government-supported collaborations between the private sector and the nonprofit university sector, et cetera, et cetera. Industrial policies, you name it, government has done a lot to you know, sort of push technological progress forward. And I think that's our best bet still. Someday that might change and the efficacy of government to do that might go down. But I think that essentially government-sponsored technological progress, government pushes for more technological progress have been very effective. Does that mean that government-created uh, technologies will always be used for the betterment of society? Absolutely not. Because you saw the Soviet Union had a great space program and then people waiting in bread lines. So you've got to have an economy that sort of gets those innovations out there and turns them into valuable, useful things. But overall, I mean, I was just talking today about Norman Borlaug and this guy who invented new kinds of crops that literally saved the lives of probably billions of human beings just because this guy invented better kinds of uh, wheat and, and crops. That's huge. And that's the kind of, and he didn't do it to get rich. You know, he didn't do it so that he could be like the Monsanto. He could be a monopolist. He could sell advanced wheat. And like, you know, sort of take all the money of the starving Indian people. He didn't do that. He did it just because some people paid him to set up a lab and do it for the uh, for the benefit of society. And uh, that's amazing. That's one of the greatest technological successes, if not the greatest technological success in the history of the world. And therefore, I say that Tyler Cowen's thesis implies that we ought to support uh, the creation of new technologies. Does that mean we ought to support technology businesses like, you know, let Google do whatever it wants? No, it absolutely doesn't. But it means that, you know, if Google is participating importantly in innovative activities, we should support that. But we should also support it with, you know, university research, government labs, startups, and everything. Right. So sort of just to summarize, 
no evidence or compelling evidence in your view of trickle down working and trickle down maybe meaning like help the rich get richer via tax cuts or other mechanisms. But but you, what you do see working is sort of a different version of that, which is encouraging technological growth, which of course helps the rich get r- richer, but also you see a lot of consumer surplus and help a lot of other people get richer as well. Is that sort of a... Well, well it might not help the rich get richer and it doesn't have to. So, I mean, you know, a lot of innovations like, uh, you know, Norman Borlaug's innovation, I, I don't really see a way that that increased inequality in society to help the rich get richer. I think that because you, when you feed a bunch of poor people, you increase the set of people who are able to lift themselves up out of poverty and you provide more competition for the rich. Um, you make society more equal that way. So I think that innovations don't always increase inequality. It, sometimes they do. And sometimes the people who monetize those, infer- those innovations do get spectacularly rich. And it's okay to tax those people. You know, because there's a lot of luck involved there. And when you tax the people who get rich from innovations and, and if you use the money to support more innovation or, you know, then then you can come out actually ahead in that innovation race. You know, I, I think that, that taxing the fruits of monetization of innovation doesn't always provide much of a disincentive, if, if any disincentive at all. For people to try to monetize those innovations, obviously, if you have like a ninety percent corporate tax and and or business tax of any kind, and no one can make any money off of commercializing innovations, well, then no one will. So you can't make that disincentive too high. But I think that the difference between like you know, I don't know, five percent tax rate and a ten percent tax rate is not going to start stop anyone from trying to start the next Google zero. So I think that you know, obviously, you have to take it case by case and ask what will the result of this policy be. But I think that the idea that taxing rich people discourages innovation doesn't have a hell of a lot of evidence behind it. Right. And so and then the question or the place where you you might disagree with, per se, techno-libertarian philosophies is just what so you, you both agree on the need for technological innovation and you disagree perhaps on the mechanism to get there. They, they, them believing more that it comes out of you know, startups and, and private and, and you thinking more that it comes from, if not equally, from from government. I know. I, I mean, I think it, you know, I think startups do a lot of important stuff. In fact, what I think is that the typical success story, at least in you know the last century or two, has been that ideas come out of government-funded research labs or other stuff like that, or projects like DARPA, or whatever. Then startups form to commercialize those and turn those into things that benefit a lot of people. And then so the startups are sort of downstream in the pipeline. It's wrong to think of these, you know, sort of the private sector and the government as competing horizontally. And it's right to think of themselves, uh, to think of them as elements in a vertical supply chain of innovation, uh, you know, where, where basic research and, you know, sort of like collaborative skunkworks projects are done by the government. And those make their way into, um, into the private sector, by, you know, via entrepreneurs or entrepreneur-like structures within large companies, such as when, you know, IBM built PCs and stuff like that. Basically, so there's this pipeline, and that's the right way to see it. Let, let's then talk earlier, we, you sort of joked a little bit about the the slowdown and maybe unsure if, to what extent it's happened. And, and we also mentioned Robert Gordon. And the argument I think that him and others are saying is that from, say, the 1930s to 1970s, the average income went up, I think, like 300 or 350%. And we had all this technological innovations, antibiotics, it's like, you know, game changing, you know, Nixon saying we're going to cure cancer, like game changing innovations. And from the 1970s to now, 
you know, we've had computers and phones, but in, in the world of, you know, atoms, you know, we haven't, you know, maybe it's uh, best described by a founders fund slogan, which is we wanted flying cars, and we got 140 characters. Is that the argument as you understand it? And what do you think about it? Well, that's an interesting question about that slogan. We wanted flying cars. Instead, we got 140 characters. Well, guess what? We've had flying buses for a long time. They're called airplanes. And, you know, people are intensely bored with, stressed out by, or afraid of airplanes. Now imagine flying cars. You might be like, you know, on the first, on the, for the first few times, you'd probably be terrified. Then you'd go like, wee, I have a flying car. Then you'd realize that like air traffic control is just going to have to put you on autopilot. And you, you know, you sit back and like watch the world go by below. The hundredth time, by the hundredth time you do that, it's incredibly boring. Long before that, you will be back to tweeting. You will be tweeting in your flying car. That is what you will be doing in your flying car. You will be tweeting. And if you don't believe me, look at airplane passengers and see whether they look out the window and go, oh my God, I'm flying. I'm in a flying machine. Man can fly. Nope. Nope. You are reading a trashy novel. You are buying the incredibly overpriced in-flight Wi-Fi so you can tweet. All right. You're in a flying machine. You are a god to Leonardo da Vinci. And you are spending it distracting yourself from how boring the flying machine is to you. And you will do the same in your flying car. Anyway, as for whether or not innovation has come in the realm of, you know, bits instead of atoms, obviously there's truth to that. We've seen the, uh, the digitization of the economy, the ephemeralization of goods, um, you know, the sort of the rise of services, the, the saturation of demand for manufactured goods and the rise of services. And in terms of medical stuff, you know, we've seen slower progress primarily because the, most of the progress we made in the medical realm was eliminating communicable disease. That's been the biggie. That's the big thing that's just made human life so much better is the, the slaughtering of communicable disease. We had a very big win, basically, but or two very big wins with vaccines and antibiotics. But in terms of cancer, you know, it's a harder problem. Heart disease is a harder problem. We've actually made big strides against cancer. You know, obviously cutting out tobacco and discouraging people from using tobacco was, was the biggest factor in that. But we've made a lot of treatment progress and detection progress with cancer. You know, until recently, lifespans are going up everywhere. And now they're going up everywhere but America, or at least for some American groups. So basically... We have seen we have seen progress. No, we haven't found a cure for cancer. Are we going to ever find a cure for cancer? I don't know. However, we've made a lot of strides. Don't minimize those strides. As for whether or not innovation in the future will come from the worlds of bits or atoms, my personal prediction, and you know, don't put any weight on this at all because I don't know what I'm talking about, but my personal prediction is that atoms are going to make a comeback with biotech. That once we start, that we've created these these virtual worlds for ourselves to live in. And that was why we did so much innovation in bits. You know, we've created social media for us to live in. We've created all these, these apps to help us get around in the real world as well. However, when we start modifying ourselves, it's going to be big. That's going to be really big because then you're tinkering with the objective function itself. In the language of economics, you're, you're, actually, you're actually altering the utility function. And at that point, the whole ball game changes because we get to rewrite the rules of the ball game. So that's going to be bigger, I think, than what anyone is. So I think that that biotech will shift innovation back to atoms. I also think there's a possibility that cheap energy 
from cheap solar power will shift some innovation back to atoms. As in, we sort of went through this energy crunch where energy had been, we'd been getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper energy. And then we had the oil shock. And then we failed to invent fusion power. And then we failed to, you know, make nuclear power have low fixed cost. And we failed to convince people that nuclear power was safe. And all these failures of nuclear power at the same time that we started, that, that you know, oil started being more limited that we started seeing oil scarcity actually start to bite for various reasons. That's a big reason why the the rapid innovation in atoms came to an abrupt halt in the 70s. And that's why we saw, you know, airplanes have been getting faster and faster and they stopped. Basically, stuff like that. Been getting better and better personal transportation and that stopped. Construction productivity started to stagnate. There's many reasons for this stuff. You know, I'm obviously oversimplifying a lot, but we are going to see I think some changes and solar power has been getting super, super cheap. That may also happen with batteries or other energy storage things. The batteries are looking pretty promising. So I think that one of the interesting innovations you've seen recently in the world of atoms is scooters and also drones. But, you know, scooters are obviously of more immediate, massive, widespread use. Scooters are made possible by energy density. Just It's just battery innovation. We got better batteries. Like the concept of a scooter is not that uh, hard. Of course, it goes together with innovation bits because you use your app to tell you where the scooters are and blah, 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 blah. Also, I think the scooters are gyroscopically, gyroscopically stabilized. I don't actually know how they work. Um, but I think that they're, I think they might even use active stabilization um, with algorithms. I actually haven't looked into that. But scooters are pretty cool. There is the possibility of a transformative impact on the way we use cities and get around. And it's possible because of better energy technology. So as we get better batteries, as we get cheaper energy with solar power, I think we're going to see some some more atom innovation. But then again, I'm not a technologist. I'm not a specialist. If you look at, going back to, you know, Ty Conrad's book, Stubborn Attachments, which just came out, he also wrote The Great Stagnation. So he's, he's written about the topics that you've written about and we're talking about right now, economic growth uh, and also the slowdown. Are there any topics within either of those books or his ideas that you'd quibble with or have a difference of opinion on? I guess what leads to economic growth different than he does? Or do you have any? I don't really know what he sees as leading to to sustained, long-term, sustainable economic growth. You know, he basically says, if there's something we can do to produce that, then we do it. But I don't think he really commits to ideas of what that entails. And what does that entail for you, perhaps? And how does that differ, if at all, from sort of other you know, or mainstream economic thought. In terms of growth, I think that I'm kind of a Paul Romerist. I think that encouraging innovation in all its forms, technological innovation, is the surest, most sustainable, longest term route. But but that's you know, that's so vague, right? Like every economist says that. Innovations and in technology are the reason why we live better than people in the seventeen hundreds. Infinitely better than people in the seventeen hundreds. It's because of because of these technologies we have that they didn't, these things we knew do we know how to do that they didn't. And so the, the prescription of figure out how to do yet more things is a bit vague. You know, and I have some ideas of how technological innovation works, how to encourage it, but I would say that most of these ideas are still fairly speculative. It's shifting gears a little bit. There is this idea out there that some people claim that democracy and capitalism are over time incompatible, because I guess as as a inequality rises, the working class rebel. Like, what do you say to to that idea? I mean, I feel like capitalism is one of these words where like people define it to suit their purposes, kind of like neoliberal or socialism. The question of if you just have like 
completely free markets, does inequality compound over time? Say probably. I don't completely know, but it probably does. Macroeconomic shocks are usually the thing that reduce inequality in free markets. Uh, you can show that with math. But if we have you know, sort of the government in here, like say, suppose the government taxes people's inheritances, so you can't really pass wealth very well from generation to generation. Some people are still going to get rich, but you're not going to have this, this sort of persistent immobility of wealth that we have now. Would that still be capitalism? If you, if you take away inheritances, is that still capitalism? That's a value judgment. You know, at that point, it just becomes sort of a you know, word game. But I think that there, there are definitely countries that have managed to prevent inequality from rising very strongly in countries that have tried to do that and failed and countries that haven't really tried very hard at all, unfortunately, including us. Japan has tried to prevent rising inequality and completely failed. Actually, France has done a pretty good job of, of holding down rising inequality. So you see various approaches and, and various degrees of success and failure here. You know. The idea that we can that we can use this blanket term capitalism and apply it to certain economies and then like include their laws of capitalism and blah, blah blah is I think hubris. I think that we really can't. There's too many different kinds of things that go by the name of capitalism. There's too many different levers to pull here. There's taxation, redistribution, spending, there's regulation, there's you know, all kinds of, of things that you can do. And so whether or not that makes a system uncapitalist at some point is a thing that people are just going to argue and shout about, but that's not well-defined. If you could wave a wand and make any policy change or make any other change that would reduce inequality, what would you do? I would implement a high inheritance tax. That is what I would do. I also think there's a good argument that if you make, if you substitute inheritance taxes for maybe corporate taxes or taxes that fall somehow on productive innovation in a you know so if you basically raise raise the inheritance tax and and you know use it to offset reductions in corporate tax then there's a fatigue event and the economist has made the argument that this unambiguously raises productivity as essentially you're taxing the donald trump's of the world who you know or the uh certainly the ivanka trump's who aren't going to increase value they're just going to you know sort of deploy their capital inefficiently because they're not very good at doing it the the net effect will be a redistribution of capital toward the people who can use it most effectively. Uh, so think of like, yeah, you know, use it. Basically, the the Jeff Bezoses of the world will get more capital, and the Donald Trumps of the world will get less capital. With a if you reduce corporate tax while raising the inheritance tax, that's a very interesting idea. The idea that actually heirs are not good for productivity that letting rich people keep inherited wealth is actually bad for productivity is a powerful idea. So I would raise the inheritance tax and I would make it a true inheritance tax. What's the strongest counter argument to that idea, not on moral grounds, but on economic grounds? Like what is the economic argument for why inheritance tax doesn't make sense? The economic argument is that it'll reduce the rate of national saving because people will spend all their money before they die because they know that otherwise it'll just get taxed away. Now you said strongest argument, but I don't, that that could happen, but I think there's a number of reasons why we shouldn't actually worry about that argument. Number one, uh, we have data that shows that a lot of people leaving money to their to their descendants, a lot of bequests, are essentially random. People just accumulate as much money as they can, and then they die. And they might have spent the money or given it away if they could have, but they didn't know they were going to die. 
And so a lot of a lot of bequests are, are random. In fact, probably the bulk of it. There's also the fact that if you tax inheritances more, it could induce rich people to actually save more if they're, you know, so for the target saving is the term for this behavior, but it's really just income versus substitution effect. Basically, just like income taxes could potentially raise GDP by forcing people to work harder to maintain a certain standard of living, which isn't necessarily an argument for income taxes, by the way. But inheritance taxes could actually sometimes could cause rich people to save more to make sure that their kids got a certain amount that they were targeting. So the effect on national saving is actually pretty ambiguous, and, and it's it's not clear at all that inheritance tax would reduce national saving. Also, there's the fact that with extremely low interest rates and you know companies sitting on lots of cash and and people that that actually our savings rates are good enough right now that the cost of capital is really, really low. That's an argument some people make. I'm not sure if I buy it. I think that there's counter arguments to that. I think that overall, should we worry that taxing inheritance will, will reduce the rate of national savings? I say no. I say no, we should not worry about it. Right. Of course, people make a moral argument like, I earn that money, I have the right to do whatever I want with it. You know, I, I should be able to leave it to my kids if I want. But that just collapses into the argument of like taxation is theft. And no, taxation is not theft. So, sorry. If you, could, if you could wave a wand and change anything about how economics is taught, what would you change? I would make it more empirical because a lot of the ideas that we teach in economics have good empirical backing and we should show how to prove that these things are true. You know, when you, when you learn physics, you learn Newton's laws and one of the first things you do is you go right into a lab and you measure how long it takes things to fall and you verify that constant acceleration is true for objects of various weights and shapes, etc. For economists, data is the lab. And it, but we don't make the kids go into the lab. It's like if you were to learn physics theories but never actually see how these physics theories work in the real life or how to, you know, like prove that they're right or, or work with them in real life. That's not good. More empirics in especially undergrad economics class is necessary. You can do, you know, statistics for, you know, to see, to observe supply and demand curves. You can look at the effect of a hurricane on orange supply and the, you know, concomitant rise in price and reduction quantity. You can use things like that to estimate the supply curve in the market for oranges. Basically, these, these concepts aren't super hard. They're not super easy, but they're not super hard. And we do expect college students to, to learn, you know, mildly hard things. So I think these should be taught because currently economics still seems to a lot of people like philosophy with math attached to it. And it shouldn't because there really is a lot of empirics in there. And what's the pushback against that idea if there is? Is is it practical, bureaucratic, or is it philosophical in the sense of, hey, there isn't that much data or enough data or enough confidence in the data? I mean, honestly, obviously, you know, it's different and empirical data isn't the same as lab data. But I think that the similarities are close enough where the analogy holds. There, ha- there's a little pushback, probably from people who just don't want to change the way they do things. Status quo bias is a real big, important thing. So, have I seen, you know, sort of philosophical pushback to this idea? I have not seen much yet, but I'm sure that if this idea were to gain steam, and now some some new textbooks actually are including a lot more empirics, so we'll see if there is a pushback against that. But it's just so obviously uh, the core of economics, you know. Um, most economics papers now have empirics and, and you know regressions in them. Like most of them do. Mo- the era of the like philosophical theory paper 
has mostly come to an end. There are, there's still a bit of that, but, but it's much less. And so all the professors teaching the, the students are going to be people who mainly do empirics for a living. And I think they'll be very comfortable with the idea of teaching that in their classrooms. Yeah. Digging on a few other questions about uh, economists. What subjects do you think economists are overconfident and their opinions shouldn't be as respected as they are and, and vice versa? What subjects are economists' opinions greatly undervalued? Well, so in terms of overconfidence, antitrust is a thing that comes to mind. You've had basically uh, industrial organization economists for a long time have essentially been saying, you know, market power isn't that bad. Mergers aren't that bad, or at least not coming up with strong reasons why they are bad. And I worry that this is leading us astray, that actually antitrust and pro-competitive policies are more important than we've realized in the modern age. and that. IO economists have been, you know, I don't know why. Some people, of course, allege, you know, either, you know, they, they allege conflicts of interest, basically, where they say, oh, you know, IO economists get to do all these consulting gigs, companies that want to be able to do mergers and get their merger past the, uh, the regulatory authorities, they hire IO economists as experts, blah, blah, blah. Or they might in the future, or if you quit your job, you might want to get a job at one of these consulting firms. And so therefore, as an IO economist, as industrial organizational economists, you have a strong incentive not to say anything pro-antitrust, not to say and not to speak out against mergers. If that's really happening, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be the most surprising thing that ever happened. But I don't know if this is actually happening or not, if this effect is happening or not. So I'm I'm concerned about the industrial organization field's impact on antitrust and merger policy. Uh, law and econ is one of these very popular poppy kind of fields that has been pretty much bad, I think, for the for the world. Um, I could go into that a lot, but basically, I mean, and of course, law and econ has been the most influential in antitrust itself. So I'm, I'm kind of repeating myself here. Where else should economists be distrusted? I don't know, like not many like whole fields to distrust come to mind. I know everyone picks on macroeconomics and I used to pick on macroeconomics a lot, but I think that macro is just inherently incredibly hard to get right and to figure out anything in. And I think that macroeconomists have been making strides since the recession have been trying really hard, especially younger ones, to sort of do what they need to do and make the discipline more empirical, to consider alternate ideas like behavioral ideas and blah, blah, blah. So I think that macro has been getting a lot better. My macro bashing days are, are done for good. Where should people listen more to economists? Well, apparently on free trade. I mean, Trump's trade war has been going disastrous. I'm not like an orthodox free trader, and I think that economists have often been too simplistic in their public arguments in favor of free trade. But I also think that had Trump listened to a few economists about free trade, he wouldn't be doing the stupid things he's doing now. So there's a place where people need to listen to economists more. Um, more generally, economists have just been doing a lot of great empirical work about everything from you know health, education, stuff like that. People should be paying more attention to that work. Right. I mean, we've been talking about in this podcast, how economic growth and particularly in the process of technological innovation is is sort of obviously, or we've talked about its benefits as, as if they're obvious, but a lot of the world doesn't doesn't see that. In fact, see, sees the opposite. What is sort of the problem of how economic growth is branded or messaged, or or what would you recommend if if you were trying to change it so that people would see, hey, when there's more technological innovation, that's better for everybody. Well, to be honest, so I think that first of all. There's this theory that I kind of buy that the basic impediment to development, to economic development or, you know, rapid sustained economic growth is incumbent elites. Because when you have growth, it's very disruptive. 
you get a new set of elites. You can think of the shift from a landed aristocracy to a mercantile elite. You can think of the shift from a manufacturing to a finance elite in some countries, or you know, even vice versa. You could think of shift from you know, sort of people who specialize in in verbal literary analysis of things to to math people as elites. So a lot of changes in technology will will naturally create changes in the power structure, uh, or at least put pressure on the power structure change. The people in charge don't necessarily want that. They might be willing to live with a poorer country as long as they can make sure they stay on top of it. You know, the King of England didn't have air conditioning, right? And he didn't have, you know, like uh, electric indoor heating, and he didn't have refrigeration, and he didn't have vaccines, and he didn't have antibiotics, and he didn't have, you know, a lot of the stuff we have now. But the King of England had a whole bunch of servants there to, you know, wipe his feet or whatever. And a lot of elites will probably forego the air conditioning and antibiotics in exchange for having a whole army of servants to wipe their feet. They'd rather be a, you know, a bigger fish in a smaller pond. They'd rather have more power in a poorer country than less power in a richer country. And of course, there's also a lot of people who have been angry at them for how they've lorded over them over the years. And they're afraid that if power fluctuates and they lose power, someone will take revenge on them. So yeah, it's probably rational. So a lot elites are often scared of technological progress because of disruptive. But that being said, I think that most countries in the world are now very pro-growth and that a pro-growth ideology has taken over even in the poorest countries, even in Africa, and but definitely in, in richer countries too. I think that everyone realizes now that growth is important. How do you think about immigration in the context of, of economic growth and where do your views differ from mainstream accepted thought on immigration? I don't know what's mainstream and accepted anymore. You know, polls say that everybody really loves immigrants and then Trump is president. So, you know, but what do I think about immigration in the context of economic growth? I think that immigration helps economic growth in a number of ways. One of the ways is when you raise population, you increase home market size, and then you increase the incentive for companies and whole industries to locate within your borders. So as long as countries have borders, there will be, you know, agglomeration. There will be, you know, some countries that get the business and some countries that don't. And businesses want to go to where they can sell to the locals. So when you raise immigration, you maximize local purchasing power and you send a message to industries like, hey, if you want the customers, you better stay in this country. Then they provide jobs and they raise wages and blah, blah, blah. So there is that sort of uh, argument from agglomeration. There's also the age structure argument where if you have everybody get old, it's very hard to pay for social security, Medicare services for old people, et cetera. So if you have low fertility, you want to keep importing, you know, youngish workers so that they can pay for the comfortable retirements of the old because their kids are not numerous enough to do so. So those are two of the main arguments in terms of general immigration. If you're talking just about skilled immigration, there's actually more reason. Skilled immigration probably raises productivity too, because when you get a whole bunch of smart people in relative proximity, whether at companies or in cities like San Francisco, blah, 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 when you get a whole bunch of smart people together, they tend to exponentially sort of increase the amount they innovate. They act synergistically. They're more than the sum of their parts. Imagine like, you know, geniuses laboring away in isolation versus getting a whole bunch of geniuses in a room and having them exchange ideas. The whole bunch of geniuses in the room is going to probably accomplish more. And so basically there's this economy of scale for smart immigrants on top of the overall benefits that we might see from immigration as a whole. You know, skilled immigrants are actually more valuable. You get more bang for the buck, really, in in grabbing global talent. 
And I would recommend everybody, William Kerr's really good book, The Gift of Global Talent. Just came out. He's a, a Harvard Business School economist. It really lays out the case for why skilled immigration is essentially a no-brainer. Yeah, so that's basically what I think. Immigration is probably good for growth. Skilled immigration is unambiguously great for growth. Where are you on the charter city movement? The charter city movement's interesting. Basically, I think it's it's really interesting to sort of get to sort of do policy experiments. Policy experiments are incredibly interesting. And in the past, when you've had you know little city states to do policy experiments, Venice or the Hanseatic League or the you know pre-imperial city states of China, or even in the modern day, we've had Hong Kong, Singapore small countries like Taiwan and Ireland and the Netherlands. And we've seen a lot of very successful experiments that larger countries then copy. You had Taiwan basically prove that market economies are good and work. And China, who could look at them and say, hey, market economies are good and kind of work. And then the big country copies the small country, but the small country was more able to nimbly experiment. So I think there's that's the argument for charter cities. As for whether or not people will be able to politically do charter cities, it seems difficult. Like Hong Kong took a war. Singapore took wars to establish. And most of these small countries took these wars to establish where you basically had someone go in and pick a bunch of ass and, you know, slaughter a bunch of people and break off some tiny little piece of territory and say, okay, here, this is now its own thing, like Hong Kong or whatever. And then you had experimentation within those those small microstates, doing it peacefully, getting countries to actually say, all right, we are going to give you, the charter people, absolute authority to write the laws of part of our country. I think not a lot of countries are going to be willing to do that. It's going to be a hard sell. So is it an interesting idea? Yes, absolutely. Is it politically feasible? I really don't know. Speaking of politically feasible, how about UBI? You know, Tyler Cowen says that he uh, is not a fan of it because you know he believes strongly in symbolism and he wants a symbol that encourages Americans to work, not one that that doesn't. And so maybe maybe he'd be a fan of you know basic work, but but not UBI. What are your thoughts on that argument and UBI more broadly? I agree with him on that. I think that UBI is best used as a supplement to income rather than as a replacement for labor income. I agree about the dignity of work. I agree. I even would go, might go farther than Tyler, and I'd say that actually idle hands are the devil's tool, and that when you get a whole bunch of people not working, they find something else to do, and that and the things they find to do are often, you know, often innocuous, but often enough destructive. So I agree that work is important, but I also think that, you know, if you were to give people income supplementation of like four thousand dollars per per year, that's a small one, you know, yeah, just give people four thousand dollars a year. That's not going to harm anything. That's actually going to do people a lot of good because it's going to remove a lot of the uncertainty. It's going to give this sort of absolute safety net, absolute cushion to poor people and say, at the very least, you've got this. We try to do that with in-kind transfers like food stamps and Section 8 housing vouchers, especially with housing. It's very difficult to do that. But but to give people enough, it decreases the likelihood that they're going to get turned out on their ear, you know, and that they're going to just be on the street and destitute. I think making them safer that way is a good idea. Just to come back to, you mentioned you used to, you've changed your mind on, on macroeconomics or you sort of no longer critiqued it. What has sort of led to that evolution? Well, I think that the, the critiques I was, I was leveling against it were right. And macroeconomists have been far too cavalier about making theories and then believing them without testing them. They have been far too cavalier about 
or, or without testing them rigorously, you know, giving them only the, the vaguest pass-throughs, uh, you know, waving in the direction of data, but really not doing anything. They, um, macroeconomists refuse to check the pieces of their models. So they would model like some, you know, relationship between consumption and interest rates. And then they, they test the overall model against data, at least weekly, but they wouldn't even bother to test the pieces of the model. And so they, they wouldn't bother to see whether the relationship that they posited between consumption and interest rates actually even close to hell in the real world. And then when people finally came along and did that exercise, they found that consumption and interest rates tended to move in exactly the opposite way of the, you know, standard setup of macroeconomic equations uh, called Euler equations, by the way. It was, you know, it was just this big fail, this really big fail that they didn't, that they didn't test this thing. And there, and so that, those were, were some of the problems macroeconomists were were too unwilling to consider behavioral ideas and that has changed basically the the basic problem with macroeconomics is that it was not they didn't bother to tether it to reality as strongly as they could have and now slowly it's starting to develop a more empirical culture where people care more about testing macroeconomics against microeconomic data and they care more about that and so so good things are happening there it'll take a while especially because it's contrary to the way a lot of the old guard wants to uh, wants to do it what's an example of, of that happening in action or an example you'd like to see oh um, i mean i just i hear people talking about how uh, reviewers reviewing their paper demand that they uh, you know test some you know intermediate conclusion of the model against microdata, and that's discipline that's needed and you see a lot more people doing empirical macro papers you see a lot more so people tested whether uh changes in unemployment insurance policy really made people uh drop out of the labor force they tested whether or not changes in um, income, you know, that you knew you knew your income was going to change going forward. You knew the exact date it was going to change. And the standard theory says that you should smooth your consumption so you plan for it. And so that date that it changes is actually not, it shouldn't be important to you at all by the assumptions of most macroeconomic models. But in fact, it turns out that it is important. And on the date when your your benefits finally go away that you knew was happening for a long time, you actually do change your behavior on that day, which indicates at the very least that people are unable to borrow to smooth their consumption. It also might indicate short-sightedness or a whole bunch of other stuff. Elements that you now see macroeconomists incorporating into some models and playing with. You see a Xavier Gabay wrote a paper called A Behavioral New Keynesian Model that I really liked. It just totally tossed out this idea that people think infinitely far into the future, and it made people sort of short-termist in their thinking which seems like an obvious assumption to a lot of people who aren't economists, but that was anathema for a very long time. I want to sort of ask this sort of series of questions of if you could wave a wand and change anything about X, what, what would what would it be? And maybe we could start with the modern university. The modern university, well, I would try to curb costs. If you look at how much it actually costs to educate a university student in America, it's about twice what it costs to educate a university student in other countries. I would try to get that cost down by maybe limiting administrative costs. I would also have the government mostly get out of the business of student loans and replace it with grants to poor students. I would have universe, I would have government support second and third tier research universities with a lot more research money to allow them to upgrade to first tier research universities. I think that will revitalize local economies um, as well as, of course, producing a lot of good innovation. I think it'll revitalize local economies in declining and stagnant regions. And the universities are our most underrated tool, and our most maybe our most important tool of economically revitalizing declining regions of the country. 
So that wasn't just one thing. That was a bunch of things. But would you have similar answers or anything different from K through 12 or unique to K through 12? I think that, that people are experimenting with some things and it's very hard to make progress with K through 12 because universities are not just education. They are research places, research facilities. And we tend to focus way too much on the educational component of universities and think way too little about the research component. And that is a big problem. Um, with K through 12, there's no research component. So it's just pure education. The question of how to reform education, I would say that there are not any definitive answers yet, but that the one thing that kind of consistently improves education outcome is high intensity tutoring, where you basically get people a tutor. Can we afford to get tutors for you know large numbers of American kids? Well, no, but maybe if we get a whole bunch of robots and the robots give us magical, huge productivity and also take our jobs, we can all get jobs as tutors. But so far, no, we're, you know, we can't really tutor every kid. Right. How about our healthcare system? And another way of asking that is if we could adopt the policies of any other country's healthcare system, what would it be? I think that Japan has a really great healthcare system. Well, they have government insurance that essentially pays 70% of all your stuff, unless you are sort of like poor or really old, in which case it pays 100%. But for most people, it pays 70% of, it, of anything. And they have basically cartels of doctors who control and set prices. So, um, you know, they, uh, they set prices and they have price controls and government health insurance. Actually, the Japanese system works pretty well. They, they spend very little of their GDP compared to us on healthcare, even though they have a lot more old people. So given their age structure, they should be spending more of their GDP on healthcare and yet they're not. So they've done really well. Uh, France has a pretty good system. Um, Canada's system, you know, has its problems. Canada's system is the system a lot of people on the left want to copy here. But, you know, it does have its problems. Um, it could be a bit a bit better. But one thing we've seen is that the, our current, you know, our hybrid government slash market healthcare system is pretty untenable, insanely inefficient, and nobody really likes it. There are a couple things people do like about it, but then most overall, it's, it's not very good. So the response of libertarians will be like, oh, we've just got to have a real free market in healthcare. But there's just so many reasons why that's not going to happen, anywhere from moral reasons to, you know, sort of practical implementability reasons, that I think that every other rich country has gone in the direction of having government health insurance. And I think that eventually, you know, we're going to go in the direction of this too. It's going to happen. It's just not the kind of thing that, you know, where there's this other really awesome alternative that nobody has tried. I think there is not that. And we're going to go toward government health insurance of one kind or another. So, so I would try to make the best government health insurance system that we can. You wrote this blog post a couple of years ago called A Big Sweeping Theory of History. Can you unpack some of the ideas that you wrote about in the post and perhaps if the ideas have evolved in the couple of years since, since you were in it? That was in 2015. I had a, a picture of the, the Colosseum. Everybody likes these long, these long cycle theories of history, right? All right, so let's, let's see what I did. Technological change uh, is stage one. A huge burst of new stuff gets invented. Growth accelerates. Phase two, globalization. New tech and growth create new global supply chains. Trade and migration accelerate. Phase 3A, inequality. You know, so globalization creates inequality. Phase 3B, cultural change. Growth, you know, and, and technology displace elite and create cultural differences. And financialization, where, you know, uh, sort of finance companies get really rich off financing this new boom. And geopolitical shifts which is sort of the changing of the guard of elites at the, at the country level instead of the individual level. And all these drive the rise of extremism, cultural displacement, 
and demographic change create rightist movements, while basically inequality creates leftist movements, then they fight each other, then society gets more extreme and polarized as they keep fighting each other, then we have an economic slowdown because you know financialization causes a bubble, then everybody gets really mad, which feeds extremism even more, and then everything gets basically sorted out in a giant ass war. That is the theory. So basically, it's the theory that w- the process that we saw in the late 1800s and early 1900s is a structural thing instead of just the way things shook out that one time. This is the theory that we are seeing history sort of kind of repeat in some ways, uh, and it's not a coincidence. So that we had the globalization of you know the, the late European colonial period and the immigration waves that happened at the end of that period. And we had financialization at that point. And we had great big cultural change. Obviously, the industrial technology modernized everything. And then we had the right and the left things. You know, the center couldn't hold. The best lacked all conviction. The worst were full of passionate intensity, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Rightists fought leftists and blah, blah, blah. And that culminated in Stalingrad and this gigantic ass war where the right and the left fought each other. Historian Anthony Beaver has depicted World War II as the fight between the global right and the global left with America sort of being the, this moderate in between that sort of went and picked up the pieces and then sort of faced down the left after it defeated the right. There's some, I think there's some truth to that, although obviously there's a lot more than that going on. Could this big cycle theory of history of these cycles of globalization and war, of technological revolution leading to globalization, leading to disruption, leading to war, leading to the retreat of globalization, could this be real? Yes. Do we have enough data to ever prove that this is real? No. And where are we uh, right now in, in that phase in today, according to that theory? Oh, we're in the, the rise of extremism and, and war. I've characterized the, our current extended political troubles as a cold civil war in America. There's also ratcheting tensions with China. There's a, you know, there's a new power on the block. They're taking advantage of new technologies. Obviously, China has partly gotten rich by shipping things to other people, which is taking advantage of global supply chains, which are created by the internet. In the future, China's prowess may be enhanced by its domination of technologies like artificial intelligence. So China both benefited from and may propel and create new technologies and is a rising power that will challenge older powers like the United States and disrupt the international system. We've had the rise of the right and left. In America, there's big right-left conflicts now. And, you know, there's Tensions rising, autocrats gaining power in a lot of countries, populists, which are sort of these soft autocrats that that take power sometimes in democracies, rising. We've seen huge inequality rise in the world, within countries especially. And we've seen all the ingredients for this kind of thing to happen again. What's interesting is that in recent decades, we've seen a lot of alternate history replays of some of the things that happened to us in you know a century ago. So the Great Recession is kind of like the Great Depression, but instead of everything just collapsing, we printed a ton of money and we bailed out the banks and we did stuff and we sort of limited the damage and we had unemployment insurance and we had had the government do a big stimulus and hire a bunch of people. And so we we mitigated the damage so it didn't turn into another Great Depression, even though the shock to the world was fairly similar to what happened in the Great Depression, the initial shock and the amount of wealth destroyed and the financial crashes. You know, Iraq was sort of a replay of Vietnam, blah, blah, blah. The alt-right was sort of a replay of the 1920s KKK. The left movements are obviously a replay of the 60s left movements. And so we've seen a lot of replays of things. We've seen another wave of globalization. 
We've seen another wave of financialization. We've seen an information technology revolution that in some ways parallels the, uh, you know, the, the industrial revolutions a uh, hundred years ago. So we've seen a lot of these parallels and it just remains to be seen whether or not we can avoid a modern parallel or repeat of World War II or World War I and II, you know, which were really, World War I, of course, was kind of inevitable. The European uh, colonial system was going to collapse when the Europeans fought each other with sufficiently powerful weapons. World War II didn't have to happen. Um, that was just a giant, unmitigated disaster that happened. And it happened because of horrible people got in charge of countries and used them to do horrible things. We weren't angels, but we, we stopped those guys. And I really hope that this doesn't happen again today, that we don't see a populist United States, a totalitarian China, a totalitarian Russia, all fight each other with modern weapons. I really hope that doesn't happen. I'm very scared about, you know, the way that China is acting, the aggressive way that it's been acting in the South China Sea, the really awful things it's been doing to the Uyghur minority, the sort of dystopian totalitarian society it's creating with its social credit system and various other kinds of constant surveillance and using information technology to control and monitor every aspect of people's lives, China worries the hell out of me. And I don't have a lot of confidence in the current United States leadership. It's really the worst that we've had. Arguably, we'll see how Trump responds to international crisis. Bush responded badly. We'll see if Trump is even worse than Bush. I'm very worried about what's happening. You know, Putin, uh, you know, instability in in East Europe that that could explode. I don't think, you know, we're on the eve of war. I wouldn't predict a war tomorrow, but I'm a lot more worried than I was five years ago. If you were in charge of our foreign policy, what would your approach to, to China, Russia, et cetera, be? Well, my first approach would be to get as many allies as we can, to firm up our alliance with India, with Japan, with all the, the countries of Europe, with countries that you know were not traditionally seen as powers, but that could be very valuable allies like Vietnam, Indonesia et cetera, et cetera. I would avoid conflict with Iran. I would stop trying to like pressure and, and fight Iran at all. I would divest from that sort of like incipient conflict. I would, you know, try to maintain the status quo, you know, as long as I can with the aid of alliances, I would use things like the now defunct TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, to build economic blocks, uh, you know, as a bulwark against against Chinese sort of like economic regional domination. But of course I would, you know, I would maintain as, as much of a dialogue as possible with China and with Russia and make it clear that our intentions weren't aggressive. And I would avoid doing things like trying to include Ukraine and NATO that would, you know, scare Russia or trying to like, basically trying to avoid doing things that make us look like the aggressor and make it clear that we were just trying to preserve the status quo because as a status quo power, that's what you should do. You've written a bit about how the president has much less power than we think, and perhaps now we should be grateful for that. If you could change anything, we would want to change anything about either our political system or our system of, of governance, what might that be? Uh, well, I'd remove some veto points, like, uh, you know, filibusters have made it very difficult to, to do things. I would, um, obviously, I would crack down on gerrymandering. I would do a lot of pro-democratic reforms. Basically, crack down on gerrymandering as hard as you can crack down on sort of vote manipulation like we've seen in North Carolina, uh, like there might have been in Georgia, you know, crack down on, on a bunch of that stuff and basically increase democracy as much as possible, increase representation as much as possible. I would expand the House of Representatives, uh, you know, because we have 
far fewer representatives per person than we used to. And I would do things like that. I would basically remove a lot of the institutional factors that make it difficult for people's will to be heard and expressed and followed, and that make it difficult for the representatives we elected to govern. We were talking about immigration before. There's this line that I've heard uh, some would say, nationalism is the new racism. Uh, I guess I'm just curious how you think about that broader concept of in the future. Could you imagine, we also talked about charter cities, but people having less nationalistic ties. But people saying nationalism is the new racism. Well, nationalism was the old racism too. When you say we are the people of this land defined by our, you know, skin color and, and shared genetic heritage and whatever, and you are not the people of this land, you are, you are outsiders, you are illegitimate, you know, that's, that's always been racist. And, and racism has always been a big motivator of that. Is all nationalism racist? It depends on what you call nationalism. There's also the concept of liberal nationalism, where you basically say, you know, I want our country to be as, as great as possible. I, I love my country. And there's jingoistic nationalism, which is just basically saying, yay, the American flag, yay, our army, yay, us at the Olympics, yay, us, America, rah, rah, rah. That's kind of vacuous. That's just cheering on your own team. You know, I don't really have a problem with that, but it's also not much of an ideology other than like, I like my team, whoever that may be. But I think it's the, it's the racial nationalism that has always been a big part of racism and that remains a big part of racism. The, the most dangerous idea in America, in American culture, is the idea on the right that non-white Americans are not real Americans. Of, of course, you know, there's anti-black racism has an incredibly long history that we won't go into. There's always been the idea on the right, not, not everyone on the right has this idea, but, you know, this has been fairly common that black people are like, you know, not real Americans, subordinate, whatever to white people. But now there's, to, to add to that, we've now got this rising xenophobia, this idea that Hispanic immigrants are not real Americans and will never be real Americans and that that's not what an American looks and sounds like. And the Asian Americans aren't real Americans. And that, you know, there are these perpetual foreigners, you've got the perpetual foreigner stereotype, this rising tide of, of exclusionary thinking on the right, which has been operationalized as Trump, which we know is Trumpism, is the most dangerous thing to the American polity because the numbers speak starkly for themselves. Either America will be a nation of all races or it will not be a nation at all. There is no going back to to 90% white America, you know, of course, without some incredible genocide that would put Hitler to shame. There's no going back to that. You could break up the country and have like Vermont and North Dakota be like white nations, etc. I don't think anyone really wants that. Um, maybe some people do, but if so, they're stupid. So, so basically, we, we've got to be a multiracial nation. We've got to succeed as a multiracial nation or we can't succeed as any kind of a nation at all. We had a chance. There was, you know, a lot of Republicans tried to push their party in the direction of being a more multiracial party. And ultimately, they failed. The Republican Party is, is more racist than ever. I won't say than ever because, of course, there's like 1910 to think about. But like it's, it's, it's more there, were, there was always some racism in the Republican Party. There was always some racism in the Democratic Party. The Republican Party has become far more racist. And Trumpism is, you know, basically a statement that the new immigration of his, mostly Hispanic and Asian people, but also some, you know, Middle Eastern people, et cetera, has been illegitimate, is an invasion, is not people moving here to be real Americans and to join the American team but is actually an invasion of aliens who will never be full Americans and who, who don't deserve as, as many privileges or recognition as white Americans 
you know, whose ancestors built this nation, blah, 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 bullshit. And that idea of Trumpism is absolute poison to our nation. And it must be quashed. You know, we must get rid of that. We must vote it out. We must, you know, excise it from our culture. America must be a multiracial nation or it won't be any kind of a nation. There are certain groups, marginalized groups, who seek reparations in some capacity. And there's the authority question of how does one how does one address that? We've given reparations for specific things that we did. So we've given reparations for, um, you know, the Japanese internment several times, actually. So we've done that before. We do a lot of things. You know, of course, we, we sort of genocided and ethnic cleansed the Native Americans. We do a lot of things to sort of try to boost Native Americans, uh, you know, the you know, allowing Native American casinos and things like that and all kinds of like scholarships and, and helpful things. We've tried that with black people, affirmative action and, you know, busing and a bunch of things like that. There's been giant pushbacks every time. Should we do more stuff to sort of give black people a boost? Is there going to be a giant pushback to that politically from people who don't want to do that? Yes, there is. There always has been and there always will be. And that's just, you know, it's going to be a difficult thing, but we've got to keep pushing that direction. I don't want to see things like affirmative action become a spoiled system where basically everybody is sort of arguing, you know, everybody trots out their own sort of like pet sociologist consultants to say they face this and that kind of structural discrimination and this and that kind of structural boost. It gets way too complex, way, you know, fast. But do we have an obligation to black people to, to give black people a boost after, you know, all the things that have been done to black people in America? I believe that we do. And I believe that we unambiguously do. That's going to be an uphill battle to convince a lot of people, but I believe that we do. And uh, so I think that you have to you have to strike a sensible balance on this where you don't turn race relations into sort of a spoil system. You encode racial boundaries into law as little as you possibly can, but you also, you know, recognize you know the historical problems especially with what has been done to black people and you you try to make that better. You know, besides being not just a neoliberal shell, the neoliberal shell, is there any other idea you'd like to shill and perhaps one that is either understudied or under theorized or you think people have a misconception about any other thing that you wish people either knew a more about or b believed what you believe? Georgism. I love Georgism. Redistribute land. So most people think of Georgism in terms of a single policy, which is the land value tax, which is the, basically a property tax with exemptions for improving the land, like building things and whatever. That is obviously a good policy, but that should only be the jumping off point for thinking about Georgism. Henry George, American economist, 100 years ago or more, he basically came up with this idea of you know redistributing land. And people who followed him and, and read his ideas were behind some very successful land reform programs Asian, in East Asian countries that ended up growing very strongly. This guy, Wolf Ladiinsky, is one of my heroes. He basically helped Japan and Taiwan, who were later copied by South Korea, do these land reform programs that gave land to peasants, that took it away from unproductive landlords and gave it to highly productive farmers. And that was great. That was absolutely great. We need more focus on equitable land use and land ownership in this country. We have a housing crisis that is very acute. And more generally, we need to think about a system where nature's bounty is, you know, divvied up evenly, you know, where outside, you know, people don't get outsized claims on 
uh, nature is bounty. And of course, we have a long way to go there because, you know, most of the natural resources are dominated by political cronies and, and, you know, bad people. And a lot of the land is, you know, owned by landlords and everyone else pays high rent. And so we, we've got some of these problems with unequal division of, of nature's resources that need to be rectified. And Georgism is the idea that we should think about ways to do that. And people don't really, haven't really thought about that. People keep thinking about redist- about corporations. They keep thinking about, oh, you know, corporations have all the money. We need to get workers more representation with unions and, and or worker representation on boards or whatnot. You know, we need to cancel out corporate power with things like minimum wage and more regulation, blah, blah, blah. People think a lot about corporations, but people need to be thinking more about land and landlords and land use. Perfect idea to close on, spoken like a true economist. Noah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thank you. It was very fun. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.